everyone, you are listening to Humans of SDU, brought to you by Merit Media. In today's episode, we have Aleph, teacher and researcher at SDU, with interest in consumerism. Enjoy! Hello Aleph, welcome to Humans of SDU podcast. We're very happy to have you here. Hi Anna, thank you very much for having me. We're obviously having you here just in our minds and in our Zoom screen, as you are currently in Turkey. And we are sitting in Adense in Denmark. So could you tell us how are you in Turkey? How is it going there for you? Well, I think uh, even though I'm in Turkey, I feel like I could be anywhere right now because I'm not really leaving uh, the apartment that much. I do sit outside in my balcony. I do have the luxury of being able to do that here in Ankara. Um, it's It's been fairly nice weather for the past couple of weeks. But otherwise, it's just a lot of work, uh, online teaching, online research meetings, um, online chats with friends. So <laughs> I guess it's it's more or less the same as being anywhere else right now. And how are you doing in Onsa? Pretty much the same. Like I was just thinking about it that sometimes um, I feel like we are all existing in some weird bubble because everyone I talk to is either it's always on Zoom and they are not in the same country as me. And yeah, the same. But you mentioned that you are in, in Ankara. That's super fun. I, I, I visited there once and it was it's a really pretty city. I guess it's a shame that you can't leave the apartment <laughs> right now. Because yeah, the beaches are really nice there, right? Oh, well, um, maybe you've been in Antalya. So I'm in Ankara. Uh, maybe on Zoom it sounds similar, but Ankara oh, I, I, is. I'm just bad at geography. Oh my god! <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no worries. <laughs> but Ankara is kind of. In, if if you want to cut it out, that's fine. Yes. I was because while you were talking, I'm like Ankara, a pretty city. Um, that's very polite, very oh, generous. Um, no, no, don't worry. But do you want to ask again or? I'm just gonna check the map. <laughs> <laughs> Ankara is it's kind of in the middle of Turkey. It's landlocked. It's also um, there's not much natural or historical beauty here. I ha- I'm afraid, oh but God. I really wish I were somewhere else, like on the seaside right now. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, <laughs> could you maybe tell us how? Is it that you got to Denmark, but you were born in the States and now you're in Turkey? Could you just take us quickly through that journey? Of course. So I was born in the States. Uh, I started school there. I went to up to the third grade in the States and then uh, my family moved back to Turkey, which is where we're originally from. Um, And then I basically did all of my schooling in Turkey. So all the way through grade school, um, from grade school until the end of my PhD. I received my PhD in 2015 um, from a university called Bilkent University in Ankara. And I was uh, planning on starting a job somewhere in Turkey actually, but I also wanted to get a little more um, experience doing research abroad. So I applied for um, some research funding from the National Science Institute of Turkey. Uh, and then I, I was in touch with colleagues at the University of Southern Denmark. So I went there for 
a research visit in April 2016. It was supposed to be um, about five months, and then it turned into five years. So Bang. long story short, there, there were a lot of things that happened that kind of led to this outcome. One was that there was a lot of political turmoil in Turkey, and uh, the circumstances were not too favorable for me to return and get a job here. Uh, but right around that time, uh, the University of Southern Denmark hired me as a postdoc. And that was also originally like, okay, let's, let's give this a try for a year. And one year turned into two, and then that turned into an assistant professorship. And here we are. So that's, that's kind of like in a nutshell, how I ended up being um, employed and uh, how I end up living in Denmark. But I, I'm back here now because I came to visit my parents in December uh, for Christmas break. But what was intended also as a short visit then turned into a much longer one because my return flight was canceled. Denmark went into hard lockdown. And I, I thought like I might as well stay until things start opening up again. Mm. So you ended up being five years in Denmark, am I? Yes. What is it that you ended up doing here? Um, so you mean in terms of a job or research? Uh, in or In terms of your research, what is it that you're involved with? Okay, so, I, well, I'm involved in, I guess, uh, quite a few research projects. Sometimes I feel like it might be too many, but <laughs> there are um, a few that I can talk about. One is uh, I do some research in uh, the neighborhood Nürbra in Copenhagen. Um, looking into um, especially public commercial spaces, public spaces, and trying to understand the different sort of atmospheres in different parts of the neighborhood. And uh, also, especially with a bit of attention to um, diversity, because Nürbro is known as a very multicultural neighborhood. But there are parts of Nürbro where that uh, multicultural, multi-ethnic character is very visible, and there are parts where it's not so visible. So. I'm trying along with my colleague, uh, Professor Ian Woodward um, from also the Department of Marketing and Management. Uh, we're doing field work, comparing different streets and different uh, food spaces and coffee shops, cafes in Nürbro, trying to understand like what kinds of spaces are more welcoming to uh, people of diverse backgrounds, what kinds of spaces maybe they're not intentionally not on um they're not intentionally necessarily like uh posing any boundaries for people to enter but uh, there might be places or spaces that are not necessarily so welcoming for um for ethnic minorities so that was kind of uh, the entry point into the research but we we are kind of expanding this to look more generally into food spaces and uh uh, dynamics of social participation, inclusion in not just maybe Narbro, but uh, in different types of uh, food spaces in Denmark. That's really and, uh, yeah, go on, sorry. It's really interesting that you mentioned that. My, I have a friend and she's now actually in the process of moving to, to the district of Copenhagen. So could you please tell us a bit more about this, this research? If, if you can, like what, how do you... How do you sample the? Yeah, yeah, of course. The so space? what? That's uh, that's a great question, and maybe 
to the uh, at, at the sort of risk of sounding like I'm self-promoting a, a paper, a research article in which uh, we present some of the earlier findings of this process is already out uh, from a journal called the Journal of Sociology. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's again, like it's co-authored by me, Alev Kurolo and Ian Woodward. Um, but what the way that we sampled was basically, so this was, this was an ethnographic uh, field work. Basically, in the very beginning, I went to Nurebro and I walked and cycled around with uh, some Danish people who mm -hmm. knew the neighborhood really well and who pointed me, you know, pointed towards places saying like, oh, you know, look at that cafe. It's that kind of place. And oh, look here. This is where, you know, people of more sort of ethnic minority, especially Muslim background mm -hmm. hangout. And oh, look, this is a place where different types of people kind of get together and mingle. So that was kind of like uh, the very early stage um, exploratory part. And uh, as I sort of walked around Nurebro uh, with residents, and as I also walked around myself, I started really to pay attention to um, the kinds of material objects and uh, design elements things like the lighting, the smells, uh, this, this kind of is called sensory ethnography. So really try to um, get into like the uh, sense of being in, in Narborough, what it feels like to be in Narborough, what it feels like to walk around Narborough and uh, what it feels like to be in some of these commercial spaces. And I myself am from a uh, Turkish background. There are lots of kebab shops in Narborough that are owned by uh, people <laughs> of Turkish descent. Mm -hmm. Of course, we don't share the same kind of life trajectory. I was not born in Denmark. Um, I'm, I'm kind of coded as uh, something in between an immigrant and an expat because of my sort of career, but also because of my background. Mm -hmm. So it, it's like an interesting dynamic being in Nurebro also as a, as a researcher uh, of Turkish descent. But uh, as I kept going to Narbro, and as we also started uh, going to Narbro with Ian, we started identifying some key sites and key uh, streets. And one of these uh, streets was Blogarsgel. Um, I apologize to Danish audience uh, if there are any <laughs> that because my Dan Danish pronunciation is really not great. But Blogarsgel has a uh, kind of a particular history. It's it's um, it's a street where that where there have been a lot of political demonstrations. There's a square um, Blogarsplatz which has seen a lot of uh, political demonstrations, including quite recently. Um, and uh, that that street is where you see um, a lot more visibility of. Uh, of uh, people of uh, ethnic minority background, especially of, I would say, Middle Eastern Arab uh, backgrounds. And it's also known a little bit, or at least the stereotype is that there have there has been a lot of gang activity on that street. Uh, gangs, again, of Middle Eastern background. And I make this distinction because there are also gang activity. There's also some gang activity with uh, ethnic Danish uh, uh, background as well in, in the larger Nurebro. But anyway, that, that was like one street that we identified as very interesting and uh, where there are these uh, cafes and spaces that have uh, Middle Eastern cuisine and they kind of uh, have also design and atmospheres that kind of uh, try to give some of the aesthetic sensitivities, sensibilities, sorry, of, of being of Middle Eastern background, but also combine it with uh, Danish elements and uh, there's, there's generally, I think when you walk into some of these spaces, 
you feel a kind of a certain type of warmth, uh, a certain sense of being welcome there. Um, I, I, I see like people of very different multiple backgrounds kind of hanging out in some of these uh, spaces together uh, at the same table or sometimes separately. So I think like there's also in, in um, there's a term for this, uh, the sociologist uh, Elijah Anderson has called these kinds of spaces cosmopolitan canopies. So they're almost like protected spaces where everyone can coexist. Maybe it's uh, for a short period of time and maybe it's a very sort of uh, contained space but these are places where people get together and exist uh, in, a, in a sort of convivial, friendly relationship. Um, but we kind of found uh, another street to be very interesting, and that, and uh, I'm going to try to say this in one go, Jarsborgel, um, that is sometimes referred to as the hipster street. Okay. And it's not too far from Blogarsgel. I, I don't know if either of you know about these streets. I think I've um, been there once, yeah. but I didn't check the street name, so I <laughs> I was just trying to think back, but but no, not. Yeah, Yersbogel. I'm I'm sure. Well, not sure, but you may have been there because it's it's got like a lot of these really nice uh, independently owned boutiques and uh, shops uh, and cafes. There, uh, there's also there have been a couple of restaurants that are kind of on the higher end mm -hmm. and run by um by restaurateurs that are well known um i'm i'm i mean again with the name pronunciations i'm hoping to get it right but uh, christian uh Puglisi, uh he's uh well known for having established uh, several restaurants in copenhagen so mm -hmm. there was a uh, manfreds and manfreds and Olea on that street. Unfortunately, they both shut down after COVID, but uh, they were sort of uh, very sort of well known also on that street. But uh, there, there's sort of a, a kind of different atmosphere on the street. And the street was actually once uh, the headquarters of Hell's Angels, the Copenhagen chapter, apparently. And uh, rumor has it that the sort of the Hells Angels was kind of pushed out or, or not, not so much rumor, but we, we've talked to some of the shop owners on that street. So um, they were kind of the Hells Angels was kind of pushed out uh, the residents, uh, the municipality, the police, they kind of worked together. So there used to be illegal drug trade on the street, but now the drug dealers are elsewhere mm. or so we've heard. <laughs> so. But it's, it's kind of like a very um, family-oriented atmosphere on the street right now. Um, when you sit there on the street, you see like countless uh, baby buggies on any given day, both mothers and fathers. Like it, it's almost like a bit of an ideal, you know, Danish sort of uh, middle class, upper middle class lifestyle that is being on, you know, being displayed uh, this sort of uh, almost like a parade of buggies and uh, lovely young parents sort of walking mm -hmm. across the street. It's it's quite uh, you know youthful in in many ways also. Mm -hmm. So that was the other street where we did some observations, and that's also where you hardly see um, any of the sort of people that you would see on Blogarsgel. I, I kind of feel like maybe some of them are the same, but. Uh, 
also there's kind of a visible difference uh, between the types of people that go to that that hang out on one of the streets versus the other but what is um, this caused by what is this that the streets which exist like let's say so, really close to each other have these different atmospheres i think well first of all um there's very different uh type of um design elements i think that so I, i'm not going to say that this is the only cause of why different types of people uh hang out on these different streets but i think like it's possible to see that uh, these two streets cater to people with uh, different tastes. And in sociology, of course, taste is uh, closely linked to other sort of social structural elements, uh, such as class and education. Um, so I'm kind of like uh, trying to talk about this stuff in, in sort of everyday terms. So hopefully it's, uh, I'm, I'm not trying not to use much terminology but hopefully it's getting across. Oh, definitely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I would say like, so that's that's one part of the story. I mean, one, one part of the story is of course that some of those shops on the street, they're more expensive than what you would find on uh, Blogarsgel. But when you look at the cafes, for example, the, the price of coffee is not necessarily different. So um, there's like no economic reason for as to why, you know, someone who, has a coffee at uh, at a cafe in Blogarsgel could not go and hang out on um, on on Gersborgel. and then also when you look at the um, the customers at the cafes on Blogarsgel, a lot of them are also like highly educated. Uh, they also um, do well in many ways. Uh, so it's also not necessarily completely about like the kind of education or or like the cultural capital in sociological terms that the people have but i think like there is definitely a little bit of a a, a kind of aesthetic appeal in yersborgel that seems to appeal more to this sort of uh, upper class white danish uh, clientele and uh it's it's not necessarily like welcoming in the same way that uh, some of the cafes at Blogarsgel are. And we compared two cafes, uh, one on Blogarsgel and the other on uh, on Yersborgel. I won't I won't say which cafes they are for uh, research ethics purposes. Yeah. But uh, if you go maybe you might be able to observe this yourself. And uh, like the cafe on Yersborgel is a lot more focused on the coffee itself. So it's it's very much about like uh, expressing uh, the sort of uh, characteristics of the coffee beans and um, a lot about like uh, allowing people to have the sort of very special coffee experience. And they also uh, draw all these sort of, uh, they, they, they draw your gaze to where the coffee has been raised, the, the, the beans have been grown and uh, how it's sort of uh, processed ethically and so on and so forth. So there are all, a lot of these um, elements there that I think appeal to a particular uh, group of people, um, as opposed to in Blogarsgel, it's I think the the atmosphere is also designed in a way, and some of this is maybe intentionally designed to facilitate more sort of conversation. The focus is less on the particular food items or the coffee beans, but it's more about like generating a sort of cozy and convivial atmosphere. Now, I'm not saying that uh, none of the cafes on Yersborgel are cozy. It, they, they also, um, I think they're 
they can be quite comfortable for some people. But I think like to whom does a space feel comfortable? There's like a lot of different uh, elements that one has to unpack to understand that. And we try to do that, especially by focusing our attention on like the material elements, um, the objects on display, like at Blogarsgel, you have uh, these sort of uh, softer uh, seats and uh, the carpets. There's, there's like a kind of warmth and special kinds of textures. Uh, whereas on Yersburgel, it's it's like a lot uh, um, cleaner surfaces, sort of cleaner in the sense that no clutter, um, all all it's all white. All the focus is on the coffee. Um, you can also, of course, get your work done there. So it's it's a little bit uh, quiet in some ways. So it's it's a very different kind of atmosphere. Very hippie. So <laughs> Go on. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, we do also call, I mean, this this has almost become an established term now. Um, not almost, it has become an established term, both in uh, in like everyday language, but also when, when you read uh, uh, even academic articles, they talk about uh, hipster cultures or hipster sort of aesthetics and so on. So yeah, definitely that's the case. But where maybe I'd like to move on from this a bit, because where we actually found you, how we met was through your course on marketing across cultures. And that to me sounds like a quite a different area again. <laughs> <laughs> so what is your reach into that field? Um, to marketing, you mean? Yes, yes, so, yes. Yeah. Well, I would say that a lot of what I teach in marketing across cultures is not completely divorced from what I talk about in this paper, although the paper itself is a little more sociological, I will admit. But basically, um, most of the research I do has something to do with markets and consumer culture. So if, if uh, you recall, Anna, from our uh, one of our first lectures, we live in kind of this culturally constituted world in which, you know, markets and the various other intermediaries play a huge role in kind of like shaping the cultural uh, universe in which we live. Of so. If nothing else, remember yeah. the McCracken article. Yes, <laughs> great. <laughs> so I, I would say like by studying consumer culture, I understand like uh, in, in, of course, uh, many times in very particular contexts, like what is this cultural world in this particular context? How do people relate to each other within this context? What is the role of uh, commercial establishments such as the cafes in uh, shaping the relationships between people, in shaping the relationship that one has to oneself, so one's own understanding of oneself, one's uh, identity, one's subjectivity, um, and, and all those kinds of uh, questions about you know all kinds of politics. Uh, so. I think like uh, marketing itself is very much, of course, drawing from, but also shaping uh, culture. So that that's kind of the connection. But also, of course, teaching a course sometimes has uh, very practical reasons too. Uh, this was a course that needed a teacher at the time. So yes. I became the teacher <laughs> because it also aligned uh, with my sort of area of research. And uh, the, the purpose of marketing, of marketing across cultures is of course also to understand how marketers 
need to or, or to teach how marketers need to understand culture and how they also need to use culture to look into like the ideologies and myths and uh, political tensions which within a given context in which they're trying to sell their goods and then uh, you know learn something from that in order to be able to sell what they want to sell. There was one semester course in one sentence. (laughs) (laughs) I hope I hope sometimes I I wonder, yes, what am I teaching? But no, uh, (laughs) I think this is it in a nutshell. I hope you agree. Um, Yes, yes, it sounds familiar at least. (laughs) (laughs) But how do you enjoy the teaching? uh, I enjoy teaching very much. I um, it's, it's something that gives a lot of meaning. Research is fun and uh, producing and disseminating research is like, uh, it's, it's like a lot of us maybe think about it as the reason for going into academia. But then um, this, I don't know if this holds true for everyone, but I found that uh, teaching was like a really uh, nice way to also like reflect on some of the things in which I'm doing research and think about how how do we use this in a more sort of practical sense and uh, how can I sort of present this to our students in a way that it it helps them with their personal growth with their professional growth so I I, I think like making that connection was also something really kind of like ah you know an aha moment uh, (laughs) for me but otherwise, I also just simply like the uh, the act of engaging with students. So I, I take uh, a lot of pleasure from it. I derive a lot of meaning from it. I just enjoy it. <laughs> I guess that's that's the sort of short answer. Do you do you see any difference between um, teaching and and being a student in Denmark and in Turkey? Yeah, I do. Um, I so there might be a lot of different factors for to explain this difference. But I, I do find that the students to whom I teach in Denmark, they really respect uh, the sort of classroom setting. Um, mm-hmm. this, this doesn't mean like, this doesn't mean that they are formal. I like the informality in Denmark where everybody addresses each other by the first name. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like um, the students who are in class, they're there to learn. Uh, of course, everybody can get distracted sometimes. Um, so I'm not saying that everybody's paying attention to me 100%. I'm sure that I also bore people to death sometimes. But generally speaking, I get the sense that uh, they sort of respect this process of learning and uh, learning together. So that's why I have found it actually sometimes easier to teach Denmark compared to teaching in Turkey. Mm. Um, The universities where I taught in Turkey were private universities. And sometimes I think the students were there, um, you know, feeling like they're paying to get their diploma and they're also paying for me to be there. Uh, I, I, this is not the case for everyone, not for sure. There, there have been some wonderful students that I met and taught in uh, and learned with in Turkey as well. But I, I hear this also from colleagues teaching elsewhere, especially at institutions where um, where students pay to get education. Um, I think maybe that is something that's quite different in Denmark, where there are only public universities. It's uh, a bit of a different experience in that sense. And, and I, I mean, I'm saying this 
knowing that it's not just Danish students that I'm interacting with in class, like uh, in, in all of the programs where I teach, um, it's, it's always a mix. Maybe in some classes, Danish students might be the majority, but I see this like across the different uh, international students. And uh, I, I realize that some international students do pay to get an education in Denmark if they're coming outside from outside of the EU. But uh, nonetheless, I haven't really seen any behavior that disrupts that environment of learning in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And you said te that teaching works as a nice, let's say, a bridge between the research and putting it into the practical use. And so I was thinking if the podcast that you involved with could serve as an additional bridge, maybe, if that was the idea behind That's absolutely the idea and the hope behind it. And uh, we, we kind of try to make it um, as accessible as possible for people outside of our, um, you know, both students, but also um, other researchers or other sort of uh, interested parties, whoever they might be, um, just so that you know, they can get a sense of what kind of research we do and what kind of uh, things we draw upon from our everyday life and how, you know, these ideas can be like this research can help us understand the complexities of our everyday lives. But we also um, try as much as possible to engage our students in the podcast so that we also want to disrupt some of these hierarchies that are a little bit inherent to education, like who is the teacher and who is the learner. Um, I, I do believe that we all you know, learn in the classroom. Maybe I do have the role of being the one who needs to like disseminate some knowledge, but each time I teach, I learn a lot of things as well, both from the texts that I uh, teach from, but also from students' comments. So I feel like engaging our students in the podcast is also a way to, um, to sort of uh, question at least some of this, you know, um, hierarchical model of teaching. Okay, that's, that's certainly very insightful. And I always like to, you know, <laughs> hear a little bit the other side because I'm, I'm a student and I like, I like to hear these little snippets into a teacher's life. But now I would like to ask you uh, the big question we ask from every guest. Um, and this question is about a life hack. A life hack that, um, that gets you through the day or, or just in life general, something that's um, very special to you, uh, a daily hack, something like a that. A daily hack? Yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I think for me, um, a life hack is that I do get sort of, if, if I'm like really um, feeling nervous about something, uh, could be like a presentation or if, if I'm a little bit stressed out uh, because I have some deadlines, I, I try to make like a little bit of space for knitting even during the working day. Mm -hmm. So I knit, I, I know we... Uh, um, talked about the possibility of me talking about my hobbies I'm finding a way to insert it in there but yeah that is indeed like something that I do sometimes throughout the day um, mm -hmm. knitting is a life hack for me to get through 
it could be stressful times. Also, sometimes like uh, if if I'm in like a meeting or a seminar where I don't need to do any talking, or if I don't need to like take notes intensively, I also knit through those as well. And not just on Zoom, but also in, in physical meetings. I, I've done that at conferences. So, and at uh, like it, during long journeys, knitting has really, you know, saved me from stress and boredom, uh, <laughs> it, depending on when I'm doing it. I mean, I, I can't say that it, it fixes everything. It doesn't fix everything, but it, it really helps Yeah, I heard that it helps a lot of people focus uh, knitting and, and doing a lot of things with their hands. Because yeah. I, I find that Zoom uh, meetings and especially classes are really hard for me to, to focus because I just get distracted by, by really everything. And it's not because the subject is boring. It's just because I it's so different from a usual uh, setting. And I heard from other people that knitting or, or doing like even just doodling, uh, you know, with, with pen on a paper helps you uh, be, stay in the zone. Yeah, you should start knitting, Sophie. Yes. <laughs> I, I recommend it to everyone. <laughs> very popular. I totally hear you about like Zoom being very different. Again, like uh, having done research about space and the properties of, you know, physical space, I also know that, you know, being in a physical classroom, there's certainly something about it that, you know, um, shapes the, the learning process in a different way compared yeah. to Zoom, where you're staring at the screen. And uh, then also, like, there are all these uh, other distractions around you, or, or you just get tired from staring at the screen, too. Mm -hmm. That's definitely my experience as well. So I hear you. Anyway, thank you very much for the tip as well as for the whole talk, Aleph. It was a really pleasure yes, talking to you here. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was it. Was very nice to be on your podcast. Thank you guys for listening. We're gonna be back with another episode next Wednesday. Check out the other episodes and our social media for updates. And make sure to check out Aleph's podcast, Tales of Consumption, as well. See you next time.